This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Your host, Aggie the Ball, here for a Monday morning. I hope you had a great weekend. Today on the show, how will changes to the Solomon Islands election process affect voting? When you listen to these candidates campaigning, what are the policies they're pushing for? And we must try voting for the policies instead for the candidates. Palm scheme workers are sharing their reality on what life is like. Even Vanuatu's new Prime Minister, Sato Kilman, chimes in. Because basically when I'm what it basically means is that we won't have workers left in Vanuatu. When we talk about development, who's going to do it? We need a workforce in the country. country. And how can a traditional Samoan diet improve our health? Common foods during the 1830s that were eaten were taro, breadfruit, banana... Uh, coconut, yam, and fish. So, you know, all the foods were off the land, from the sea, fresh. More on that later in the show. But to find any of our stories, simply type in your search engine, ABC Pacific Beat, and feel free to share all these stories across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubow, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, if you were up early this morning, you would know that Fiji's Rugby World Cup hopes are alive after recording a historic win over Australia overnight. sets to return favour. Carter Gordon coming forward for Australia. They don't get near it, though. The thrilling 22-16 test win over the Wallabies marked the first in almost 70 years for Fiji, uh, who last conquered the Wallabies back in 1954. More importantly, it's breathed fresh life back into their World Cup campaign after losing their opener to Wales last week. But here's flying Fijian coach Simon Raiwurui. It's not just it today, it's a combination of the work that we've done since uh, the beginning of the campaign. The boys have worked really hard, pushed them to the limits, uh, and never once have they complained. And when you work hard, you get the results. So, yeah, super proud of them. Well, for more on how this game played out, we are joined by Head of News and Sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, uh, Inja Singh. With that, I say Vinaka, welcome to the show. Yeah, Yandra and uh, Bula. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Matt, put this into context for us. How big is this? You know, if this was to be uh, compared to anything, this is as big as it gets in the sporting history in the sense of uh, sporting greatness for Fiji. To beat Australia, two-time world champion at the World Cup when your Rugby World Cup dreams are on the line, to reignite your uh, you know hopes of playing in the quarterfinals it's huge. Uh, we've won the Olympics. We have won, uh, you know, numerous sevens titles. This is right up there for the Flying Fijians. Well, the match began in the middle of the night there in Fiji. So I imagine people are just waking up to the news now. What's the atmosphere been like? Well, it was uh, the kickoff was at 3.45 Fijian time this morning. And believe me, Every sporting fan, rugby fan, Fijian, basically was up already. They, how I can say this uh, very much is listening to the chorus of cheers coming out of every home in every neighborhood this morning. 
as the Fijians went about uh, doing their business in taking down Australia. And you know what? The people are still celebrating. As I speak to you, there's still people tooting the car, you know, horns in the cars. There's still people with the blue Fijian flags uh, fluttering in the air. There are flags outside people's individual homes. There are people wearing blue to work today as uh, they make their way to work, maybe a little bit later than usual. But uh, yeah, that, that, that's what the atmosphere is right now in Fiji. I love it. Indra, where was the game won for Fiji? And I'm wondering what was sort of the big adjustments that they made since losing to Wales? And look, uh, you know, overall Fiji played brilliantly, but I put it down to Simeone Kurumvuli and his kicking this morning. The You know, Simeone Kurumvuli has not played any super rugby this year, did not play any super rugby this year because of injury. When he was initially named as a third-choice halfback in this team, you know, a lot of people had question marks about it. Last week against Wales, when we lost, we uh, turned down some kickable uh, opportunities uh, for reasons better known to the team. Today, he stepped up to the plate, and with the kicks and getting those three-pointers, that set the platform. Uh, for the Flying Fijians to win that. And of course, Joshua Tuisova, the player of the match, what an outstanding performance by him and the likes of Levani Botia, just bringing that added experience to the starting team this morning. Uh, and so because of that, what has to happen now for Fiji to make the group knockout stage? Pretty simple, I reckon. He just beat uh, Portugal and Georgia. Because Fiji picked up two bonus points in that loss against Wales, which will go a long way uh, if I was to do some calculations, because Australia and Wales battle this this weekend in France, and that is going to you know take a lot out of one of the two teams, or at least both the teams. One should come away with a win. Whoever wins that, it should be pretty close uh, from what I've seen. And you know, if Fiji manages to uh, get some impressive score lines against the Portugal and Georgia, they're not looking at only finishing second, but perhaps also looking at that first place finish. So is that the next game, though, Indra, just to make uh, confirm that? Yeah, yes. sure. So Fiji is on a bye this week. Uh, you know, every team in the Rugby World Cup gets a bye week. So Fiji gets a great bye week and a great week where they're able to recover, relax. On October 1st, uh, that is when we take on Georgia, and a week later we play Portugal. Love that. Uh, I finally just want to ask, what did you make, though, of Tonga and Samoa's opening matches? Samoa absolutely had to dig deep. You know, their scoreline doesn't tell you the story of what Chile put up. But what I loved about the Samoans is the traditional, uh, you know, uh, Sulus and Sorongs. And when they cut off the bus, really Pacific style. Uh, but uh, but Samoa, yeah, they had to dig deep. Lima Sopoanga and, uh, you know, Christian Leliafano did play a part for them. Tonga was there, thereabouts for a little while. But, you know, Ireland being the world number one team, it is pretty hard if you're going to keep on giving away penalties or net t- not taking opportunities. They get a dig deep Samoa with a better of a chances, perhaps, of pushing for a uh, last eight sport. Tonga will need to have a lot more Polish performance because guess what? They've also got South Africa in that pool. Mm. Uh, are you able to let us know who Samoa and Tonga are facing up next? Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, this weekend is going to be very interesting in terms of uh, – the Rugby World Cup, while while Fiji doesn't play, our Pacific neighbours got to always support them and uh, backing them. So Samoa's next game this weekend is against Argentina on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, that's at 3.45 Fijian time. And Tonga is up against Scotland this morning. So in pretty interesting. Tonga might fancy the chances against the Scottish. And uh, while, while Samoa and Argentina could perhaps, just perhaps, be a decider of who joins England from this pool in the last eight.
Andrew, were you actually surprised by the heavy loss that Donga, you know, went through against Ireland? Very much. Um, I thought I thought they played early. Uh, they played well in the early patches of it. But I watched Tonga right through the Pacific Nations Cup. They they, they haven't been consistent. Yes, they've got back uh, the likes of Malakai Fakitua, uh, you know, the All Blacks uh, former All Black uh, World Cup winning player. They've also uh, got Via Fafita, another former All Black amongst the ranks. They miss Israel Falau. But uh, I would have thought that Tonga would be a little bit more polished than they were yesterday. Uh, perhaps early jitters playing together at a big stage. Um, they still can bounce back. But the Tonga team of 2011 that beat France, they, that, that, that is the kind of performance Tonga needs to put in to you know, make a statement at the Rugby World Cup uh, under the guidance of Totai Kefu. Mm, thank you for that. I uh, quickly just want to ask, what do you think are the chances of Samoa up against Argentina? Look, Argentina didn't play uh, too well against England. They got a bye week, uh, and they they really haven't, uh, you know, we really haven't seen um, their true uh, form as yet because of what we saw against uh, against England. England took their chances in terms of getting those pointers to kicks. So, uh, you know, when you've got the likes of Christian Leliafano and Stephen Luatua and Lima Sopawanga, Charlie Fomuina, I, I, I guess Samoa will look up and Selala Mapasua, the coach, will look at it and say, hey, look, this could be our final. Just as Fiji treated the Australia game as a final, Samoa could treat that match as a final, which could be the stepping stone into the last uh, eight uh, of, of this Rugby World Cup. Vinaka Inja, really good to catch up with you. Look, I'll let you get back to celebrating with the rest of Fiji after this one this morning. Appreciate your time. Vinaka. No worries. That is Head of News and Sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, Inja Singh. Now we head to Solomon Islands, who will hold its elections next year, uh, postponed due to the hosting of the Pacific Games. Australia will help foot the bill to stage the election, as the Government of Prime Minister Manasseh Songovare looks to secure another term in office. While the first ballot won't be cast till April next year, changes to the voter resignation, uh, sorry, registration, has seen a surge of people travelling back to the provinces to register. Chris Narita Almanuliong in Honiara explains. Manuel Kalori lives and studies in Honiara. As an 18-year-old, it's his first time to register to vote. It's a privilege to be able to register. I'm supposed to register here in Honiara, but I have made the decision to go to my home province to register and elect the person I think will carry my voice in parliament. He isn't alone. The Electoral Commission expects between 60,000 to 70,000 new voters to register. Unlike previous years, voters can no longer register in Honiara and now have to be present in their constituency to register to vote. It's led to a surge in people travelling out of Honiara to register in their home constituency. I'm going back to my village to meet my relatives. It's a good thing to have the registration in the constituency because it'll avoid cross-border voters. I'm going with my family because my dad's brother is the current MP. Chief Electoral Officer Jasper Anisi says the change is to curb what's known as cross-border voting. There is also a significant number of those who are supposed not to be registered into other constituencies are also induced by those who intend to contest election to gate numbers within a certain constituency. While the registration system has changed, Mr Anisi says what hasn't changed are people's motivation. We're voting on the basis that um, 
someone who wins election will support me with school fee, bag rates, solar panel, those kind of things. So that affects um, the influx of movements. The Electoral Commission says intending candidates are also trying to get more people to register in their own constituencies. But youth advocate Regina Lepping is more optimistic. She believes young people are capable of making informed decisions. Young people know what they want and down the line how it's going to impact the future. What is it that they want to see in their communities? What, what, is, what are the changes they want to see? Um, based on what they've experienced in the past or present, you know, like now, if they are struggling to go through education, do they want to see it improve in the future? Uh, if they're struggling with, you know, health and sanitation or accessing medication in their communities. She sees cultural barriers hindering some of the decisions that young people make, but believes that much more can be achieved. When you listen to these candidates campaigning, what are the policies they're pushing for? And we must try voting for the policies instead for the candidate um, because we are pushing for the policies uh, to be passed. It could be your uncle or auntie who's doing the campaigning, but um, does he or she support the policy you are pushing for? As for Emmanuel, it's his candidate of choice standing in the way of achieving his hopes and dreams. There are many leaders in town, but the candidate I believe will carry my conscience and views in parliament is in my home province. And that's my choice. And that's Emmanuel Kalori ending that report from ABC's Solomon Islands reporter, Chris Narita Almanuliang. Well, there's more than 38,000 Pacific Islanders in Australia working on farms and abattoirs as part of the Pacific Australia Labour Mobility Scheme. Now, the Palm Scheme has kept Australia's agricultural economy afloat and has transformed the lives of thousands of Pacific Island workers. But it comes at a cost, as Marion Kupu reports. From parties and weddings to nearly one million plays on YouTube, it's one of Fiji's biggest song of the year. It's called Ilavo Ni Ozi, Ilavo Mosi Mosi. Or in English, the Aussie dollar is a painful dollar and it's dedicated to the thousands of Pacific Island workers in Australia. He wants to support, support uh, our families and uh, especially, uh, especially our children. For Nai Misipeka, the song is her reality. In a small village just outside of the capital, Silva, She's bringing her five children up alone. Her husband, Johnny, is finishing his first year working at an apatoa in regional Western Australia, and he has another three years to go. We miss him uh, a lot, uh, especially when I'm uh, looking after my children, and uh, especially going to the farm, eh? when I pull the cassava, because uh, he always uh, helps us. Johnny's work in Australia supports the family. He's paid much more than he would in Fiji, and they've been able to afford a new washing machine. But their only contact is through phone calls at night, and that's when things get emotional. Sometimes uh, he feels tears when he looks after us. When uh, he calls us, uh, how, about the ch- how about the children? And I uh, said, well, the children are sleeping. He feel, uh, feel emotion. 
more than 38,000 Pacific Islanders are working in Australia under the scheme. Vanuatu leads the way followed by Tonga, where a massive 6% of the nation's total population have signed up. And in small nations like Tonga, the scheme is having a major impact on the local economy. Hotel manager Jason Strickland says he's struggling to find and keep staff. My turnover is too numerous to count. And um, it's not equated to poor management, it's equated to people leaving overseas in, in big groups. I say this jokingly, but if uh, someone uh, comes in off the street with one arm and a criminal record, the likelihood is I would probably employ them. That's how critical the labour crisis is at the moment. The labour shortage in Tonga has extended to the local hospital. Nurse manager Melene Felice says some are opting to work picking fruits in Australia simply because the money is better. Quite a few have gone on uh, seasonal workers. The scheme has helped workers build new lives back home. Yet, as the numbers grow, some Pacific leaders argue their countries are turning into outposts to grow labourers for developed nations such as Australia. It's an argument Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, rejects. I think it's the ultimate win-win. Uh, Australia benefits from having... Uh, our labour shortages filled by some of our closest neighbours. Uh, the workers win. Back in Fiji, Elavo Ni Ozi, Elavo Mosi Mosi is being sung every day across the country. And the songwriter, Josetta Vitaukura, who himself has worked in Australia, has a message for Fijians thinking of home. This is my only message to the Pacific Islanders. Uh, for those of you who want to go to Australia and uh, work there, you have to follow the rules. Uh, you have to go and work hard. Whatever problem you face, uh, you have to face it. Uh, you have to shorter so that you can get a lot of money and uh, make your family happy. A lucrative dollar, but a painful one. And that's Marion Cooper with that report. Vanuatu's Prime Minister, Sato Kilman Liftvanu, says overseas seasonal work is handicapping the country, indicating he plans to raise the situation with Australia and New Zealand. He says one solution may be a cap on the number of workers participating in the labour mobility schemes as the new government looks for ways to limit worker shortages. It's one of several priorities the new Prime Minister signalled in his first major interview last week since the removal of the previous government through a motion of no confidence. The ABC's reporter in Port Vila, Jamie Brown, with more. Thousands of Nivanatu have left the country for work in Australia and New Zealand, attracted by larger incomes that can support their families and pay for new houses back on their home island. While the labour mobility schemes are popular with workers, they become point of controversy in Vanuatu politics. Vanuatu MPs are concerned it's straining the economy of workers and that shortage of both skilled and unskilled workers is hitting tourism, agriculture, transport and other sectors. The former opposition voted in parliament last month to remove the previous Prime Minister, Ishmael Kalsakaumokoro, partly over his handling of labour mobility and its impact on the Vanuatu economy. 
Prime Minister Sato Kilman Lifton Fanu says overseas work is holding Vanuatu back. Because basically, when I'm buying means, what it basically means is that we won't have workers left in Vanuatu. When we talk about development, who's going to do it? We need a workforce in the country. Mr. Kilman says he wants to raise the issue with Australia and New Zealand. We will talk with Australia and New Zealand. They still want more people to go. Fanatu contributes the most workers to labour schemes among Pacific Island nations, accounting for about 35% of all workers in one recent estimate from the Development Policy Centre. There are almost 10,000 workers in Australia alone. While the government hasn't settled on any plan to address the issue yet, Mr. Kilman suggested limiting the number of Nifuanatu workers taking part in the labor mobility scheme could help. We will help them, but on the flip side, it handicaps us. So while it's a good program, it brings more money into the country and we give experience to our workers and expose them to different environments, it's important it doesn't disadvantage us. The new Prime Minister has moved quickly to put his stamp on other pressing issues facing Vanuatu's economy, including the state of its national carrier, Air Vanuatu. Only weeks after the previous government announced plans to be chased a new plane for the struggling airline, Mr. Kilman has replaced its port. He speaks as the new chairman of Air Vanuatu is former Prime Minister Mona Kakases Kalosil, one of the 14 MPs jailed in 2015 on bribery charges. Mr. Kilman says Mr. Kakasis is the right person to lead plans to fix the airline's problems. Because me believe Emi got capacity long Emi I believe he has the capacity. He can address the issues being faced by Air Vanuatu. Another change in direction is likely on Vanuatu's security pact with Australia after Mr. Kilman indicated he would revisit the agreement. But Mr. Kilman denies that he leads a more pro-China government or that he will draw his nation closer to China over Australia. Vanuatu, Emitekem, since independence, one stand long. Vanuatu, since independence, has a non-aligned stance. We might not follow it to the letter, but it's the basis of our foreign policy. It means we treat all our diplomatic partners the same. And that was Vanuatu Prime Minister Sato Kilman Liz Tuvanu ending that report from Jamie Brown in Vanuatu. Stay tuned as producer Carl Evans joins me shortly with our news wrap here on Pacific Beat. What's it like for those on the front lines of science across the Pacific? Come find out on our new series, Pacific Scientific. Join us for Midnight Hunts. Put those one right there. <laughs> I didn't even see that one. Trek to remote villages. Is there someone giving birth? Yes. And climb up volcanoes. We're standing seven metres above where your home was. Get a glimpse of science's lives across the region. Pacific Scientific, Mondays at 3.30pm PNG time. Right here on ABC Radio Australia. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, we're joined now by producer Carl Evans. He's going to give us the latest on our news wrap and see what's happening around the region. With that, I say good morning. Good morning to you, Aggie. How are you doing? 
<laughs> I'm well, I'm well, thank you. Yeah, a couple of late nights over the weekend, uh, date night with my partner, and fought off the urge to uh, oh. to watch uh, Fiji uh, and Australia last night in the Rugby World World Cup. And as an Australian, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> but uh, as a Pacific reporter, man, fantastic! And Congra- congratulations to Fiji. It's yeah. funny how the world works sometimes, isn't it? After that loss to Wales, such good news, definitely uh, from the weekend. Uh, but let's get straight into it. The Solomon Islands, though, uh, they look like they're going to feature on the next season of Netflix, Inside the World's Tough. Prisons, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, the Solomon Islands, they're actually going to be one of four countries, well, Solomon Islands prisons, I should say, it will be one of uh, four countries featured in the upcoming season of the show. And uh, for those that don't know, it's this is a reality show where the host lives a week uh, in some of the world's most dangerous prisons, uh, basically to experience uh, the way of life there uh, and the criminals who inhabit them. Um, it's quite hard hitting, uh, with prisoners often recounting uh, their crimes in front of the camera. And uh, According to the description, uh, this season, uh, the Souls will feature alongside Finland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and prisons in Indonesia as well. Wow. Um, just trying to think, what elements of Solomon Island prison life will actually be highlighted? Yeah, well, they're, they're not good ones, uh, Aggie, um, that, that's for sure. But uh, according to the description, uh, the show uh, will put a spotlight on, on violence against women and children um, within, the, within the Solomon Islands. Um, the host, Raphael Rowe, who um, actually told the Daily Mail, he's a former inmate himself, he, not in the Solomons, but in prison, but he actually told the Daily Mail that uh, he suffered psychological damage after his particular stint um, with, within that prison. Uh, meanwhile, some other themes in the show this season, uh, they'll also highlight Finland's murder rate. Apparently, they have the highest of any European nation. Uh, methamphetamine issues within the Czech Republic and and, uh, and uh, some of uh, Indonesia's very harsh drug penalties as well. So, yeah, from the sounds of it, it's a show that's not for the faint, uh, faint of heart. Well, it does sound quite morbid, but you know what? I feel like I'm going to be very interested in watching it. So, uh, yeah, look forward to it. Uh, we head to campaigners uh, calling on the PNG government to put a stop to destructive logging. What are they saying? Yeah, so civil society groups uh, are wanting to see an end to destructive logging practices by foreign companies uh, in particular within PNG. So this is reported by RNZ. It's something um, we've touched on a little bit in the past. Um, but the article says there's concern that certain companies are being given forest clearance authorities uh, and then misusing them. So PNG Advocacy Group Act Now and Jubilee Australia say the forest clearing authorities, uh, which is intended to allow limited pockets of forest to be cleared for agricultural or other use, is actually being used as a front. Um, they conducted a case study on one company in West Sepik, uh, and in that instance alone, they say hundreds of thousands of cubic metres of round logs are, are being exported, uh, and about $31 million of round logs have been sold over 10 years. Um, what's more, uh, there appears to be no sign of any attempt to rehabilitate the land that's being cleared uh, for any other use, uh, and this firm is only one of 24 operations making use of this FCA licence, um, uh, sparking worries that, yeah, it could be happening at scale. That's crazy, crazy. Uh, we finally end off Hawaii. They've hatched a plan to crack down on feral chickens. What is yeah, that? Yeah, pun intended on <laughs> on, uh, on that one, Aggie. So uh, Honolulu uh, has signed an agreement uh, with the local pet solutions firm who will now be able to trap and remove feral ch- uh, chickens from residential properties. 
So this is reported by uh, Hawaii Public Radio uh, and follows a mountain of noise complaints by residents uh, who were losing sleep due to a number of um, feral chickens chickens roaming around the streets. Um, They were also sick and tired of uh, certain sanitary issues um, uh, that they provided, you know, in relation to droppings, etc. And complaints were, in fact, so high that the only calls um, that were higher were ones in relation to traffic and uh, and homelessness. So, yeah, it was obviously a pretty big issue within the city. So because of this new policy, what will that now allow the city to do? Well, it's interesting because up until now, the city's pest control policies had only allowed them to be removed from city-owned properties. So, you know, town halls, libraries, things like that. But now, obviously, that has changed. So under the contract, the city has budgeted uh, $50,000, which will apparently uh, cover the cost of uh, trapping, removal and disposal. I don't know what disposal necessarily <laughs> means, but it might not be uh, great for the chickens. But, um, but it is interesting. I'd be interested to see what other Pacific nations have to say about this, given, you know, it's not uncommon for us to make live calls throughout the Pacific and hear roosters in the background and whatnot. So, yeah. Look, I'm not going to lie, Kyle. Uh, I was allowed dogs and cats as a child. So what did my parents get me? They got me a chicken and a rooster. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. So I feel a little bit connected to the story, but uh, <laughs> uh, good to know. So hopefully we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story. Uh, but I do want to thank you for providing us with our news wrap this morning. Thank you, Aggie. This is Pacific Beat. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijam Footy stars. Nijam Footy. Nijam Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time. On ABC Radio Australia. And welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Uh, let's head to Timor-Leste, where their Prime Minister will begin a six-day trip to China this week. One of his first diplomatic visits uh, since he was elected in May. Janana Naguzmal will attend the Asian Games opening ceremony and hold a bilateral meeting with President Xi Jinping. It's not clear yet what will be on the table in their discussions, but the new PM has already shown a bold approach to foreign relations. Marion Farr spoke with Timorese political expert Michael Leach from Swinburne University of Technology. It's significant, but it's not a huge surprise. Uh, Shinana Guzmao, who was you know, the senior leader of the independence movement, is back in power now as Prime Minister again and is um, prosecuting a more assertive uh, foreign policy, as we've seen recently in relation to Myanmar. And uh, it's no surprise to see that uh, he's going to China which is one of many uh, development partnerships that are important to Timor-Leste. Any guesses what is likely to be on the agenda for Janana when he meets with Xi Jinping? Well, we'll find out, but no doubt they'll be talking about bilateral uh, relationships, about development uh, relationships and uh, potential cooperation uh, in other areas. There's no indication of any sort of bilateral security agreement or anything that would keep people in Canberra awake at night. Um, but obviously, in in the background, people are wondering because Shana Guzmao is uh, very set on the development of the Greater Sunrise Project. That that's the sort of thing that would concern some policymakers in Canberra. That that might be on the table again. There's no there's no uh, particular evidence of that. Timor Leste has has made it clear it's open to uh, a range of partnerships to prosecute the development in the Greater Sunrise. And I'm sure those uh, will be among many things that are being discussed in Beijing when Shinana visits. 
How likely is it, do you think, that Janana would ask China for cash to develop this project that is, you know, so high on his agenda for for the nation of Timor-Leste? Timor-Leste has made it clear that uh, under the new government that they want to advance the development in the Greater Sunrise. I'm sure at this point they're not ruling out any uh, partnerships. My sense is, though, that that wouldn't be at the very top of their agenda because that would be quite a controversial path to pursue. Uh, in terms of other regional relationships. That said, China's rise in the Pacific has given uh, leverage, new leverage to smaller states to strike better deals with what you might call traditional partners. Um, So I'm sure nothing will be off the table. If push came to shove and and, and sort of there were no other development partners stepping up, do you think Timor-Leste under Janana Guzmao would be likely to to accept a partnership with China on this? I mean, how, I guess, how important is this project? And um, do you think Timor-Leste would actually be willing to go there? I think one of the comments to make there is that there's no real evidence of interest from the Chinese side uh, on on this particular partnership. The other thing that's worth bearing in mind, uh, there is a process going on right now with the Australian government who has appointed Steve Brax as an intermediary, and they are reviewing the development options uh, right now between Australia and Timor-Leste. On Greater Sunrise, there's a sense that those uh, projections and and, uh, budget bottom lines need to be updated. And so that's going on right now. That will, once the report comes in, uh, presumably lead later to negotiations that will be headed up by a very credible and senior figure in Steve Brax, who has very good relationships both with Australia and Timor-Leste. So that's going on as we speak. And that's an important thing, I think, to note uh, as we talk about Shinana making a visit to China. Do you think that this visit is likely to raise anxieties in Canberra or how, how do you think Canberra will react to this? Yes, I think it will raise anxieties in Canberra. And again, you know, um, China does provide leverage for smaller states in our region to strike better deals, if you like, with uh, traditional partners. Um, as we've seen, uh, Shinana Guzmao, he's now in his 70s. He's um, This is probably his last term in government. And he's not afraid to, make, to strike out and make some more bold foreign policy initiatives, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in relation to ASEAN and Myanmar. He's not afraid to uh, take a strong stance in in what he perceives to be Timor-Leste's interests. And I'm sure this would be another example of that. How has Janana's first few months in office been and what kind of government is he leading? Well, it's it's too early to say what kind of uh, government it is um, domestically, but it's a very young government. But we've already seen some very clear uh, signs on international relations that are are interesting and significant. So, you know, Shinana... Uh, Timor-Leste has, in a bipartisan way, had an overriding goal of joining ASEAN for since the restoration of its independence, you know, 21 um, years ago. Uh, Shinana came out and said controversially that uh, Timor-Leste would not accept the military junta in uh, Myanmar uh, and could not ignore human rights violations and um, would not be joining ASEAN uh, if ASEAN cannot uh, convince Myanmar to... Uh, to return to, to go on a process to return to democracy. That's a, a very big statement. Um, uh, other politicians in Timor Leste um, very rapidly came and supported that same position that Shinana had articulated. Uh, and that really flew in the face of 20 years of Timorese diplomacy. So it's a very interesting move. Uh, he's made a critique um, of ASEAN that's quite a significant one. Uh, he went on to say that. Um, 
the requirement for consensus in ASEAN um, uh, means that, uh, you know, sometimes these moves are far too moderate uh, in relation to uh, undemocratic regimes. Uh, of course, Timor-Leste is a, a strong democracy, the most democratic nation in Southeast Asia, and now it's uh, putting, its, uh, putting itself on the map in relation to this issue uh, with Myanmar. And that was Michael Leach, Professor of International Relations at Swinburne University of Technology, speaking with Marion Farr. To health, type 2 diabetes can cause kidney failure, eye disease, and it affects many people in the Pacific. A Samoan PhD candidate from the University of Auckland is researching whether eating traditional Samoan food can improve the health of people in the Pacific. I spoke with researcher Amy Maslin-Miller, who recently presented her findings at the Pacifica Medical Association conference. If someone was to say, hey, what is even a traditional Samoan diet? What does that even look like? Yeah, that's a really good question, and that's part of why I'm researching the Samoan traditional diet. So missionaries came to Samoa in the 1830s, and during their time there, they recorded just the culture of Samoa um, and really their experience of what it was like. And so for me, when I look at the research the written work about Samoan traditional foods, it's only written by missionaries. There's nothing written by Samoan people from our Samoan voices. So uh, part of my research is to explore what are Samoan traditional foods by talking to Samoan women, because this will be must be one of the first documents to record that knowledge. And it's so important that we share that knowledge for the next generation. But the missionaries did record that Common foods during the 1830s that were eaten were taro, breadfruit, banana, uh, coconut, yam, and fish. So, you know, all the foods were off the land, from the sea, fresh, and I think they uh, refer to it as a, that's more like a pescatarian diet. So with a pescatarian diet, does that mean we should be, as Pacifica people or even Samoan people, return to that type of eating to maybe not have to have such high numbers in obesity or diabetes? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a question that needs to be explored. Should we go back to our traditional food? Because again, there's no research that has looked at the benefits of our food. And so my research is providing more knowledge around that by just providing a baseline by saying, hey, these are the foods that are considered Samoan traditional foods. And then the next stage, which will be after my PhD, which is to look at how these foods affect the metabolism of our Samoan people. Just hearing from family stories as well as reading as well within the literature that Samoan people during the 1830s and even pre-colonization didn't have any obesity or type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular diseases, you know, common diseases that we're seeing today. And so I hypothesize that people did live a healthier and active lives back in the 1830s. And I believe that we can use some of that knowledge today, but there needs to be more research around it. And that's why I'm starting on this journey on exploring our Samoan traditional foods. Looking back at the 1830s, absolutely, they did not have McDonald's, KFC, you know, all the sort of processed food that we do have now. So I feel like, yes, traditional food sounds like a great way to be able to sort of, you know, eat and have that as a lifestyle. But obviously, we live in Western worlds now. We're consumed by, you know, the whole processed food. Has that come up in your findings? Yes. As part of my research, I talked to Samoan women about their 
experiences with food in Samoa, but also their migration journey to New Zealand and what type of foods they're eating today. And so, like you said, we have so many options nowadays. We can go down, drive down to the supermarket, go have some takeaways. Um, in particular, when we think of our environment, some areas will have many um, fast food takeaways within an area. And I know you're only in your second year of your research and with the findings you may already have now, I mean, on completion of it, uh, your whole research, what are you ultimately wanting to to find or even to prove or even to maybe help our people? I'm wanting to reclaim our knowledge about Samoan traditional foods. I feel that for myself personally, as a New Zealand-born Samoan, it's really hard to be connected to Samoa. And I found that during my research, I'm learning more about my culture through foods. So for instance, some participants would be talking about, you know, in Samoa, even during the 1960s, they lived very active lives as well. Like they would walk around the village, go to their neighbours, go and play volleyball. And when it came to food as well, some people still would, for instance, go at the back of their house, go and collect koko, come back and start cooking the koko to make koko lice for breakfast. And so stories like that are so valuable. And so I want to document our stories and then give them back to our community in the hopes that they may connect with that knowledge and may feel, okay, if our people used to live like that, I can use some of that knowledge today to help with my own health and my family's health. Only you interviewed women between the ages of 50 to 90 years. Could you maybe elaborate on some of the stories that they shared? I'll share one story that I also presented at the um, conference. And so uh, Vicky described her story as a child. This is during the 1960s in Samoa. And she said that when she'd come home from school, she'd go up to her house and she'd grab a piece of galo or a piece of fa'i. And then she would go down to the sea because her house was next to, the, next to the sea and walk on the rocks. And she would grab sear the sea cucumber and eat that with her gala or with her fai. And she also remembers that she would eat sea urchin, kui kui. That was her favorite food. It was just so yummy. And she remembers there were so many different types of sear. And then she remembers that the kui kui was the most creamiest when the mosa oi, the, the yelang yelang plant, was smelling the sweetest, but also brown in color. Now that you were at that conference, I mean, what were the takeaways while you were at, uh, you know, um, in the Cook Islands? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the weather was raining the whole time that I was there. So <laughs> it wasn't as nice as it sounded, but it was still nice to be in um, Rabatong with everyone. But one takeaway that I took was that nurses are really key within the health industry and that if you want a job done, nurses will do it. And... Um, they were really, they are the, the backbone of the health industry. And so when I think of my research about reclaiming our knowledge, then I, my hope is that, you know, the nurses will share that knowledge with the community because they know best how to rally our community around, but also share the knowledge with them. And so for me, having no background within clinicians and doctors and nurses, um, that was really valuable information for me because I'm like, okay. I'm going to work with the nurses to help share our knowledge about Samoan traditional foods. And that was PhD candidate from the University of Auckland, Amy Maslin-Miller. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. 
Time to take a look back at our main stories today. Fiji has breathed new life into Rugby World Cup campaign after defeating Australia for the first time in 69 years overnight to keep their tournament dreams alive. People are still celebrating as I speak to you. There's still people tooting the car, you know, horns in the cars. There's still people with the blue Fijian flags uh, fluttering in the air. There are people wearing blue to work today as uh, they make their way to work, maybe a little bit later than usual. Interesting there, head of news, sports, uh, news and sport at the Fiji Broadcasting Corporation, one of many Fijians coming off a late night of celebrations. We'll be back same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time, and you can listen to us this afternoon, 3pm PNG time. Stay tuned because ABC Radio Australia has your news, followed by Nisha Daly with Jacob Maguire. We also want to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.